But the Bible says to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. And I'm always keenly aware that Mother's Day is a difficult day for many people. There are people among us, couples among us, who want to have a child. And so after this point, they have not been able to. So every Mother's Day is um, a sad day for them. There are those among us who have, in the last few months, uh, buried their own mother. And this may be their first Mother's Day without their own mom. There, there are those among us who um, are parents who have buried children, something that is, is a horror to the heart of any parent. And this is a hard day. And there are those among us who, as they see these little ones celebrated and affirmed that life as a gift from God, know that their child is not where they should be. They walked away from the Lord. They've walked, walked away from the discipline and instruction they received. And, and it's just a heart-rending time for them. So we need to really pray for each other uh, during this day as we remember uh, the family and these issues. So let's, let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, triune in glory, we come to you as our shepherd and our guide and our king, and we pray that you would bless and nurture us. We pray especially today for our mothers. We, many of us come from homes where uh, our moms were selfless and seemed to have energy that was endless and they're always loving and kind, and we thank you for that. Others come from difficult homes. There are many here this morning who um, are in a, a difficult place regarding a child, regarding wanting to have a child. And we pray, Lord, that, there are, that, that, that those among us this morning who want to get pregnant, that even next Mother's Day, 2018, they would have a baby in their arms because you're good and you're glorious and you're the king and you do good things. So bind up those who are hurting and give grace and strength to all of us. And teach us, Lord, give us words to say appreciatively to our friends and moms and loved ones that we value them. So lead on. O King Eternal, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we discussed last week how Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake because in my sufferings I'm filling up what is lacking in the afflictions that Christ has for his church. And so from generation to generation, there are afflictions and hard times we walk through to bless other people. And I've been thinking about that because I've had this this affliction that I think is coming to an end, not because I'm going to die, but because I think it's going to get better. Um, and I've also been thinking about one of my favorite passages in the Bible in regards to these things, and it's, it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. See, good theology really does count. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, we know that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus 
and bring us with you into his presence. So Paul says, well, we know that just as Jesus was risen from the dead, we will have resurrection bodies and we'll be with the Lord. And he says, therefore, verse 16, we do not lose heart. Because of this, we don't lose heart. Though our outward self is wasting away, our inner man is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So we look not on the things that are seen because the things that are seen are temporary, but the things which are unseen are eternal. And so Paul says that, that whatever he's going through, which is beatings and imprisonment and being stoned, that, that these things are light and momentary afflictions compared to the eternal weight of heaven. And so he says, because we'll have resurrection bodies and because of the hope of heaven, he says, I do not lose heart. Now, I was thinking about this passage and I thought about some of my favorite people in this church. I think of three in this particular area are, are women who have multiple sclerosis. It's a horrible disease. It has flare-ups, and you go along, and it has flare-ups, and it, 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 it's, it's, it's devastating. And yet, these people are filled with joy and purpose and dignity, and they're a signpost to the glory and goodness of Christ. And God uses our difficulties to build his church. I, I think of parents in our church who have children with special needs and how when this baby was born, it turned their world upside down and, and how these parents live with dignity and a sense of calling and purpose as they love these children. It's amazing to me. I'm so thankful for our special needs class, our friends class that befriends and teaches these children and cares for them in the name of Christ. And, and I, it's, it is altogether amazing to me. And I think of this little situation I'm going through and I, I just, uh, how, how the Lord can use it. I, so the, just a biographical sketch, the Sunday of Easter, the Saturday before Easter, I got up and I thought, I don't feel real good. And I started getting sick on my stomach and I felt horrible. And um, Easter Sunday, I felt horrible. And I thought, Easter Sunday? And I could barely function. And we had 32 people to our house to eat on Easter Sunday. And I could just sit in the corner and wave. I couldn't, I couldn't do anything. And, and nobody there got this stuff but me. And I talked to a doctor between the services. I, I leaned against the wall and he says, there's a virus going around that takes seven to 10 days to get over. It took me seven days to get over it. It was just horrible. And I was looking at all these people and I thought, Lord, why me? Why not my son-in-law? He's right over here. <laughs> why not my neighbor? He deserves it. Why me, you know? And, uh, 
And then the Thursday after that, I got this back situation that's laid me out now for over two and a half weeks. And like I said, I think help was on the way, but it's made me slow down. And I've had to lay around literally a long time. And somebody asked me the other day, what lessons have you learned? And I, I wrote down several. I'm just going to share three with you just because it kind of goes along with this suffering theme. Um, first of all, uh, I examined my heart to confess my sins. You know, the Lord's slowing you down to get your attention. I said, Lord, I'll, I'll I need to deal with these issues. So I've confessed some sins to the Lord. And I kind of get that. John Calvin, I love these letters by Calvin. I'm going to quote him twice this morning. But John Calvin writes this. This is in 1541. A plague is coming through Strasbourg, France. And he says, when I hear that the plague is raging to such an extent, I know not what to think except that God contends against our perversity with the strong arm of his power, seeing that we are worse than stupid and insensible in the midst of so many chastenings under the rod of his correction. When this happens, what can we do but give ourselves to prayer and to seek for the spirit of godly sorrow and confess our sins in the sight of God which we must certainly do and ask the Lord to wonderfully support us under our affliction. And I said, Lord, I don't know if I have this because you're getting my attention because of my sin, but I want to deal with my sin. So I've confessed my sins, searched my heart. The second thing is character reformation or character formation and uh, readjustments. And I said, you know, I need to change this and this in my life. And I need to listen more and think better. And, and the third thing is this, that um, Sarah and I had the privilege of, of participating in a course here called Reengage for Marriage Enrichment. And every marriage should go through that. It is very worthwhile, and it was good for us. For the last two and a half weeks, I've been in Reengage on Miracle Grow. And um, as I've been carted around by my wife and made meals by my wife and taken care of by my wife, um, I've become keenly aware of how blessed I am to be married and how blessed I am to be married in a covenant relationship under the banner of Christ. And to be keenly aware that if I see my last days with my wife alive, that at the end of my days, I will be with her. And so it's just made me appreciate Sarah more. And I wrote this down. I said, it seems that we take for granted those that we love and those who love us the most. So I, I don't want to take you guys for granted, and I don't want to take my wife for granted. And I want to stop and say thank you, and that's so important. So those are things I've learned. Because it goes along with this issue of, of suffering, where Paul says that we are filling up in our affliction what is our afflictions and what Christ is, is lacking in his body for the church, which is an amazing statement. He goes on and says this, of which I become a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. This is the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed. Just to hear that 
now revealed. Paul says this mystery has been hidden, that the Old Testament Jew made the sacrifice and kept thinking, when will Messiah come? They had the, the Lamb of Yom Kippur every fall saying, when will Messiah come? They, when will Messiah come? And he's come. It reminds us of the words of Jesus in Matthew 13. He says to his men, blessed are your eyes and what they see and your ears and what they hear because I tell you. The many righteous men longed to see what you see, but they didn't see it. And they longed to hear what you hear, but they did not hear it. And how blessed we are now because Jesus has been revealed and the apostolic writings have been given to us and we have the Bible. And Paul says it's been revealed now to you. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so in light of all of these things and our, what the Lord has done and in light of the goodness of, of God in filling up in our body with our afflictions what is lacking for Christ, church, what do we do? It's so simple, so basic. What do we do as you follow the text? Paul says, and we proclaim him, warning every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. And as I thought about this and warning and teaching and maturity in Christ and filling up in our body with sleepless nights and Concern that the afflictions that are lacking for this generation, my, my mind went to this thought that, 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 that we need to give ourselves to other people. And now let me just challenge you with this. I want you to hear this. That, that everyone here who names the name of Christ needs to have what I call an Isaiah 58 friend or person in their life. In Isaiah 58, Isaiah is writing and he says, you know, the, the, the true fasting that I long for, the true worship that the living God longs for, verse six, is to loose the bonds of wickedness and to undo the straps of the yoke and to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. And when you do that, your light will break forth like the dawn, verse eight, and your healing shall spring up speedily and your righteousness shall go before you and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. And here's the promise. If you give yourself to the afflicted and if you satisfy the desire of the oppressed, then your light will rise in darkness and your gloom will become like the midday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and he'll make your bones strong. What he's saying here is this church. He says, if you, if you give yourself to the afflicted and satisfy the desires of the needy, then your light will rise in the darkness. And by that, there are people here who are involved in Isaiah 58 ministries. There are people who go to the prison every week and, and, and God blesses them as they do that. There's an Isaiah 58. There are people who are involved in uh, feeding the homeless every week from this church. There, there are people involved in homeless shelter work. But what I wanna argue for this morning is this, that, that the afflicted could be the people around you who are going through deep depression, 
who go through the grief over the death of a loved one or going through deep grief over the, uh, a divorce that they've fought against for years, who are going through affliction because of a child that's breaking their heart, and they need people in their life who will just walk with them. So I'm saying that everyone here needs to have an Isaiah 58 friend. It could be the, in the prison, it could be the home, or it could be, it could be somebody driving a, a, an import making $350,000 a year but who's in deep depression. Somebody to walk with them. And I was thinking about that, and I'm reading these letters of John Calvin, and it's just, they're just so good. And so Calvin is grieving the death of a dear friend named Claude. Just listen to what he says. This is Calvin speaking from a heart that's overwhelmed with grief. This is John Calvin. This is the main man, you know. This is the... This is the Bear Bryant Dabo Sweeney of football, you know. He's the man, you know. This is John. Okay, listen. For these two years gone by, you can well conceive how much I stood in need of an assured, faithful friend who might help to uphold me in the midst of so many troubles and heartaches. Claude not only proved himself faithful, but in every way he was dutiful and kind. And I can say with all truth, he became dearer to me than my closest brother. And the more I consider with myself how much I stood in need of a good counselor, always at my side, and on the other hand, how rare in these times is such a man like Claude, an affectionate, goodwill, and faithful man. Listen, I cannot arrive at any other conclusion than that the Lord in taking him away has meant to chastise me severely for my sins. That's John Calvin. That's not some theological lightweight. That's a man involved in deep grief. And he says, I've come to this conclusion that, that, that the reason God took Claude away was to chastise me for my sins. At that point, John needed an Isaiah 58 friend to say to him, John, that is a heart that is broken over grief speaking. That's not the way the shepherding king operates. We need Isaiah 58 friends, even John Calvin, even John Calvin. And, and so we, we come to this passage this morning. How do we pull this off? What do we do? How do we walk with messy people who are rewarding in their friendships? Every one of us here are messy people because we're sinners. You're married to a messy person. You have your best friends with a messy person. You're community groups with messy people. You have children who are messy people. You have pastors who are messy people. How do we pull it off? It's so simple, listen. And we proclaim Jesus. Warning every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete or mature in Christ. We, we proclaim him. He's been doing that in chapter one, uh, rehearsing the greatness of Christ. Chapter one, we proclaim him. He says, because of the hope of heaven laid up for you because of the work of Christ. You have the hope of heaven because of who Jesus is in your life. You think about Christ. 
You sing about Christ. You remember the cross. You remember the shed blood, the atoning work of Jesus. You remember the imputation of his righteousness to you. You sing about Jesus, and you have the hope of heaven. I've been reading lately about a guy named Polycarp. Polycarp died in around the year 170. He was a bishop in Smyrna. And Polycarp was a godly man. Um, Polycarp had an ongoing pamphlet warfare with a man named Marcion. Marcion was a heretic. Marcion only accepted the Gospel of Luke. He was platonic in that. He thought matter was bad, so he said Christ didn't have a physical body. Marcion did not like the Old Testament, rejected the Old Testament. He was just bad and led people astray. And one day, Polycarp is walking down the street of Rome, and a man comes up to him with great arrogance, and he says, do you know who I am? It was Marcion. And Polycarp says, I know who you are. You are Marcion, the firstborn son of the devil. Well, that's a good way to start a conversation. And what I'm saying is, is, is Polycarp had a theological strength. He was 86 years old, 86. And there's a persecution in the church. And they make this rule that unless you burn incense to the Roman emperor, you will be put to death. And so Polycarp doesn't do it. And so some of the authorities came to Polycarp and they said, Polycarp, we have no desire to put you to death. You're 86. You're as good as dead now. No offense to 86-year-olds, but that's, that's pretty old. You're 86, Polycarp. We don't want to put you to death. He says, I'm not going to do it. He says, he says, because I would violate the first commandment, know the gods before me, the second commandment, no idols, and the third commandment, I would defame the name of my God. And this is what he said. And this is beautiful. For eight and 80 and six years, 80 and six years, I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my King and Savior, Jesus Christ? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a while this quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. And so they had no recourse. They arrested him, put him in prison. And the, the day they tied him to the stake, this was his prayer. I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour so that in the company of the martyrs I may share the cup of the risen Christ. And as the flames were lit, somebody came forward and took a spear and thrust it into his heart, thus sparing him the agony of being burned to death. But, but this is Polycarp. And he did so. He had the hope of heaven. He talked about Jesus. He gloried in Christ. He had the hope of heaven. And that's why Paul says, we proclaim, how do you build the church? You proclaim Jesus. How do you build families? You proclaim Jesus. You warn and you teach with all wisdom to present every man complete in Christ. And Paul keeps on going. And he says, not only that, but he says, we proclaim Jesus because as we do, you bear fruit and increase in the knowledge of God. As we proclaim Jesus, verse 9, you are filled with the knowledge of his will. 
and you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. You bear fruit in every good work, and you're fully pleasing to him as we proclaim Jesus, as we glory in Jesus. As we proclaim Jesus, verse 11, you are strengthened with all endurance and patience. Listen, do you want to be patient and enduring? Then proclaim Jesus. Glory in Christ. Glory in the God who became a man and lived a perfect life and died on the cross for our sins on the cross and rose victorious and is now praying for us in heaven. Proclaim Jesus, church. He says, we proclaim Jesus because he has qualified us to share in the inheritance in the light. He's qualified us. We proclaim him because he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We proclaim Jesus because he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, all things have been created through him and by him and for him and in Jesus, all things hold together. So what do we do? We, we, we talk about Jesus. The Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. We talk about Jesus because Verse 20, we're reconciled unto God through the bloody cross. We talk about Jesus because he has now reconciled us, 22, in his body of flesh by his death in order to present us holy and blameless before God. We are holy and blameless before God because of Jesus. So there's a sport called football, and at football we have a halftime, and you'll hear coaches talk about halftime adjustments, which means you change the defense to stop the offense, or you do something offense to maybe to score more points. The, the devil is very smart. The devil has no adjustment to the following strategy. Proclaim Jesus. When we screw up our courage and talk about just say no or just don't do this or just don't do that, which has a limited impact, I think the devil laughs. When we talk about being people who acknowledge God however you want to define him, the devil laughs. When we talk about the cross of Jesus and the glory of Jesus, the devil flees. There's a couple of statements in the bulletin. One is from a book called The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Lewis is writing as a demon. He says this, and it's so true. What we want as devils, that if we become Christians at all, is to keep them in a state of mind called Christianity and. Hyphenated Christianity. You know, Christianity and the crisis, Christianity and the new psychology, Christianity and the new order, Christianity and faith healing, Christianity and vegetarianism, Christianity and the spelling reform. If they must be Christians, let them at least be Christians with a difference. Substitute for the faith itself some fashion with a Christian coloring. So you talk about the Christian faith, but really you're involved in this. And you kind of talk about the Christian faith, but you talk about this. You kind of do this, but you're really involved. But you really, that, that's, the devil says, that's good. Listen, we proclaim Jesus. We talk about Christ. 
We're talking about his work upon the cross. We're talking about the outpoured Holy Spirit in our life because of Pentecost. We talk about the glorious sins forgiven. We talk about being holy and blameless before him because of what he's done for us. We talk about Jesus. D.A. Carson in his monumental book, oh, it's a good book, it's only 120 pages. The Cross in Christian Ministry says, I fear that the cross without ever being disowned is constantly in danger of being dismissed from its central place by relatively peripheral insights that take on far too much weight. Whenever the periphery is in danger of displacing the center, we are not far removed from idolatry. And what Carson is saying is that when good things become primary and push the cross out, we've blown it. And I would just say to you, let us talk about Christ. Bernard of Clairvaux wrote a hymn. He died in 1150. But he says, Jesus, the very thought of thee with sweetness fills my breast. But sweeter still thy face to see and in thy presence rest. Oh joy, oh, oh hope of every contrite heart, oh joy of all the meek, to those who fall how kind thou art, how good to those who seek. And I just ask myself, self, are you rejoicing and resting in the presence of Jesus? Are you glorying in the goodness of Christ? How do you pull this off? Paul says, we proclaim him. And then he asks, well, how do you proclaim him? And this is what he says. Warning every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. To present every man complete in Christ. Now, this is very interesting to me. I want you to understand uh, Warning is a strong, is a, to be blood earnest. See, sometimes we say, I, I want to warn you, if you eat another uh, Little Debbie's cake, you may not feel good for supper. That's a warning. I, I warn you that if you watch Downton Abbey season three again this week, you may dull your mind. Uh, I, I warn you that if you, you know, fill the blank, whatever. Um, but this word is, Blood earnest, I, warning, warning. You know, since I've been laid up, I've, I've enjoyed watching BBC, British Broadcast Corporation shows. They're very good. They're clean. And, but it's interesting. I have to use, I hit the subtitles app because especially if they're from Scotland, I cannot understand them because the Scots have a real deep brogue. And, but I'm always interested that there are words the Brits use that I'm unaware of. And sometimes they'll use a word and I'll Google and I'll say, ooh, I don't want to use that word. Uh, that's a bad word. But then I heard this word. I've never heard it before. One person said, I'm knickered. I am knickered, I thought. Or excuse me, knackered. Not New York Knicks, knackered. I am knackered. That means I'm just tired. That's a cool word, isn't it? So saying, I'm tired, I'm, now I'm going to bed, I'm knackered. So use that this week, and some friends say, ooh, is it catching? You know, that type of thing. But, you know, 
So I want you to understand this word warning. It doesn't mean, hey, don't eat that. You may not feel good. It's like, hear me. We, it's, it's, it's filled with a blood earnestness. Let me give you how this is used in Scripture a few times. In Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul is saying goodbye to the elders at Ephesus after three years of ministry, and this is what he says. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish, there's the word, to warn. I warned you day and night for three years with tears, and now I commend you to God in the word of his grace which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Admonish, warn. Romans 15, verse 14, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness and complete in knowledge. Therefore, you're able to instruct one another. So you're, warn. Paul says, you're, you're full of goodness, you have knowledge, so you can warn each other. It's a strong word. Or, or Ephesians, speaking to fathers. Verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Warning. Dads, he says, teach them and plead with them. See, teach and plead. It's a beautiful balance. Same balance in this text. The pathos and the content, the theology. Instruction and the warning or discipline of the Lord. Or Colossians 3, it says this to the church. And generally says, now, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. See, that's it. We, we are to teach and to warn each other. We should warn each other. Years ago, we would drive to northern Minnesota for our vacation in the summer. And we would always go through the upper peninsula of Michigan. It was beautiful. And everybody from the UP would say, oh, yes, it is beautiful three months out of the year. But when we were there, it was beautiful. And we went by a place called uh, the Painted, Painted Rocks National Seashore on Lake Superior. It is. It's a group of limestone cliffs that go right into Lake Superior. It's absolutely beautiful. We camped there one time. I was on our way across. And so one day we're going across and we stopped to make lunch. And we're 20 yards from a rock wall. And across the rock wall is probably three yards. And then there's a sheer drop of 120 feet straight down. Um, 150 feet and so we're busy making lunch and I was in charge of the kids and I got sidetracked and uh, I looked up and my children aged 7 and 3 had crawled over the wall and they were on that 3 yard swath of land that kept you from and so I went over there very quickly without trying to in any way uh, cause them to jump. And I, I, I grabbed both of them in a bear hug and fell over the wall and I could barely speak. 
And I thought, well, at least they were holding hands, so they'd go together, you know, that type of thing. But I was, and and I, I said to them, I said, I, I plead with you. Please hear me. Never, ever, ever go over a barrier again like that. I plead with you. I didn't say, hey, it's no big deal. It was a big deal. And so these words in the Bible are pleading this church. Paul says, how do we do this? We preach Jesus, and as we do, we admonish all men, and we teach all men. There's the balance. Beautiful theology. Beautiful epistemological content. But you plead with people. I thought about some of these passages in Proverbs. Let me read a couple of passages in Proverbs that, that just, is, is, these are pleading passages. Uh, Proverbs chapter 6, verse 20. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart and tie them around your neck. And when you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they'll watch over you. And when you wake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light. It's a, it's a father pleading, think through and digest my teaching. Or he says in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1, My son, do not forget my teaching. Do not let your heart keep my, or let, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace. They will add you. He says, listen, if you walk in obedience, you'll have length of days and peace and joy. He says, hear me. Or, or Proverbs chapter 4, verse 1. Hear, O son, O sons of father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. Hear me. And then chapter 5, which is an incredible chapter on sexual purity. Just a few verses. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge for, for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil but in the end she is bitter as wormwood and sharp as a double-edged sword and her feet go down to death and her steps along the path to destruction. She does not ponder the path of life. She doesn't even think about life. And now, O oh sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way from her and do not go near the door of her house. What a passage. And so, by way of application, I just say, I warn you, I teach you to present you mature in Christ in your life. Passionately pursue Jesus so that you do not run aimlessly. I'm mesmerized by Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 9, where he says, I beat my body and I make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I won't be disqualified. This is the apostle Paul. So, so I, I say, in your life, passion pursue Christ. See, the lies of our culture, and they're everywhere, cannot be defeated by vacuity or nothingness. They can only be defeated by content and resolve and purpose and dignity that come from knowing Jesus. 
And so as I open the windows, pull back the drapes, and let the sea breeze of the Holy Spirit end your life as you proclaim Jesus. I was reading an article the other day about Jonathan Edwards, one of my favorite guys. Edwards died in 1758, and the article was entitled, Jonathan Edwards' Favorite Word. And really, the guy said, it really isn't a word, it's a group of words. Words like joy and sweetness and delight and being happy-fied. Happy-fied. To be made happy. It says Edwards used that word frequently. To be happy-fied in the remembrance and the embrace of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's why I say in our warnings, in your life, pursue Christ. I say to you in your warnings, to warn you in your friendship, in your marriage, invite Christ in. Proclaim Jesus. Hear, 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 hear me. Those of you who are married. I would just exhort you to do this. You have a wife and children. Have a daily time where you just come before the Lord and invite the presence of Jesus into your marriage or home. And it doesn't have to be fancy. I, I was very boring in leading my family in devotions. I'll admit it. Sometimes I was too wordy. But I, I, would, I would just get your wife, your children, just, just get ready and have, have a psalm of the day. If today's the 14th, then it is. Today's 14th, right? Yeah. Is that the 14th? Is that right? Okay, thank you. Easter standard time is 14th, right? So the 14th, you read two verses out of Psalm 14, two, three verses. And you may discuss, or you may read, get the New CD Catechism and read a catechism question and just uh, say, let's, let's just ask God to bless our day. Send his prayers all the way around and just say what you're thankful for. And it's nothing fancy, but I just think you invite the presence of Jesus into your life. And, and, and I say to families and, and to parents, let me just say parents, I, I love dedicating these babies. Let me say, I, I love dedicating babies. But let me say this. I pray for young parents or parents of young children. I think raising children today is much more difficult than even when my kids were young. And my kids are 32 and 28. I want you to hear me. I think it's much, much more difficult. Because it wasn't until 2007 that we had iPhones. It's amazing. When I, when I grew up, and I don't want to glamorize the past. I grew up in a very small town. Um, there was no such thing in our small town of 1,200 pe people, no such thing as anonymity. You didn't get away with anything. But to a degree, it was so much di more difficult to get in trouble. Um, I, I think about um, TV. We had three stations. Three stations. Uh, We had no pornography. I mean, one, one place sold Playboy magazine and you bought it and they put it in a paper bag and you snuck out the back door with it. Uh, so the, probably the most tremendous things I read were on the side of uh, outhouses. 
My, my neighbor had no running water, had an outhouse. Uh, TV was pretty tame. They did have I Dream of Jeannie, which, wow. Barbara Eaton was really pretty. <laughs> Thought about her a lot when I was growing up. She and Julie Andrews, Sound of Music. I thought, wow, that's really cool. But today you've got so much. See, Proverbs says, don't go down the street of the immoral woman. You know where Whore Lane is. You know where the Jezebels live. Don't even go there. See, the problem is now we have Jezebel and Whore Lane on every device and every tablet we have. You can't get away from it. I was reading a book recently entitled by, by the Archbishop of Philadelphia, a wonderful man named Charles Chaput. It's entitled Strangers in a Strange Land. And he just makes this comment, and I went, wow. He, he's he's uh, been a leader in the Roman Catholic Church in, 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 in pleading for sex education from a Christian perspective. And, and, and Archbishop Chaput says that this, and I just went, he says, he says, believe me, this book was written last year. He says, believe me, I've been at the forefront of this stuff, talking about to all types of people. No, 10 years ago, no one envisioned or thought about or even considered Caitlyn Jenner. It wasn't even on the radar. And now we're in the middle of it. And we're always playing catch up. And we're living in a new dark ages. I'm not trying to be dismissive or depressive, but let me tell you, parents of young children, we need to support and pray for and care for and encourage. And, and look, and so I, I say, listen, what do we do? We proclaim Christ. We glory in Jesus. We glory in the satisfaction and the joy that comes in knowing him. We say with Bernard, Jesus, the very thought of thee, with sweetness fills my breast, but, but greater still thy face to see and in thy presence rest. So listen, we proclaim him, warning, pathos, passion, passion, warning and teaching all men with all wisdom to present every man mature in Jesus with joy and dignity and grace. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we are your people and we, we read this passage and we ask your forgiveness for so often running to um, behavior modification first or running to disciplines of cultural sensitivity first or, or running to overboard correction first instead of first of all proclaiming Jesus and I pray we proclaim him proclaim you and I pray that we would do so as we warn with blood earnestness and as we teach with theological depth so that in your goodness, we can see our children 
and our friends and our neighbors mature in Christ. Lord, we long for that. So let us see the beauty of Christ and the mercy of Christ and the glory of Christ. Come, Holy Spirit. Invade our homes. Invade this church afresh, I pray. Jesus, the very thought of thee with sweetness fills my breast. Oh, sins forgiven. Adopted into the family of God. Heaven awaits. But sweeter still, thy face to see and in thy presence rest. Let us see you, I pray, O oh Lord, in Jesus' name.